0: The Why Me Project, an exclusive presentation of Faith Strong Today.
1: I don't ever think that I ever feel pressure, Holly, but I mean, maybe because when somebody has a title of president and CEO, that makes it seem like I've done nothing and therefore (laughs) I should. uh, Yeah, does anybody ever just call you El Presidente?
2: <laughs> Sometimes at board meetings, someone will say, and Miss President. And I'll, I'll be looking around like, who are they talking to? <laughs> yeah. All right. I go by L.
1: Okay. So yeah. I think, because I think at some point, like if you become a doctor, then, you know, we, we call you doctor because that's just, you know, you've earned that. You know, right. you being El Presidente, I feel like <laughs> you have earned this.
2: Uh, Well, I appreciate that, Johnny, but I definitely look at, well, first of all, I try not to look at the title because it's very intimidating. I try to take Mm -hmm. it day by day and do my best at every moment and each step look up to God and say, where do you want me now? Because I actually started in the ministry putting stamps on envelopes for minimum Mm -hmm. wage. So I definitely, when I see that title president, I'm like, wait, okay, God, this is where you want me. I'll I'll do my best. I'm going to be obedient. But it still hasn't fully sunk in, even though it's been um, three and a half years.
1: President and CEO, International Fellowship of Christians and Jews, IFCJ, Yael Eckstein. How are you?
2: Oh, thank you, Johnny. Now I'm kind of intimidated to answer that, but
0: I, I'm doing great. Thank God I'm doing great. I'm happy to be here with you. Well, we are glad that you said yes to this interview. I just, I took a look at your bio briefly. I'm like, yes, I love talking to women who are dominating in their field, that they are just strong women and are balancing families and um, impacting the world for such a positive, you know, outcome. And so thank you for saying yes. Oh, you're so sweet. And
2: balancing is a really good word because that's kind of my goal. I, my hair is actually wet because um, it's 915 here in Israel. And today is actually um, my 17th anniversary. So oh, wow. for the past two hours, I've been swimming with my family and then ran up, put on a little bit of makeup and turned <laughs> on the video. So balancing is a
0: really good way to put it. <laughs> yes. And it's never 50-50. That's <sighs> when people are like balance. It must be equal. No. It's about finding how much time you have with what God's given you and figuring out, okay, I can do an hour here. I can do four hours here. Um, but the struggle is in the juggle, I like to say.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. For me, it's all about being
2: present wherever I am, that mm-hmm. I work a lot and I need to be present when I'm at work. Uh, but the time I have with my family and with my four kids is so precious that mm-hmm. when I'm with them, I need to be present as well. So even if I have an hour and it's dinner time and straight to bed or as long as I'm present and my mind isn't on a million other places, I feel like that hour is really well spent and we get to create really good bonding and memories. And it doesn't feel like only an hour when some days if we're on vacation and I'm trying to juggle everything and I'm not really present, I could physically be there for many hours, but I don't feel like I had that special bonding time the same way sometimes an hour will give me.
1: Mm -hmm. So you've lived in Israel for how long?
2: Okay, so I made Aliyah, I grew up in America, I grew up in Chicago, okay. studied in New York, um, got married, and made Aliyah, I moved to Israel with my husband um, around 17 years ago. Yeah, exactly 17 years ago, actually.
1: Wow. Yeah. Okay, so the, so life growing up in Chicago was like what?
2: Life growing up with, in Chicago was, I would say, pretty typical for a Jewish family in America. Um, my father, Rabbi feel Eckstein, of blessed memory, he was just starting the ministry of the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews when I was growing up. Mm. So um, it was a really controversial organization and concept, trying to bridge Christians and Jews. There was so much animosity and mistrust, and it was breaking barriers on both sides, coming and saying, we're going to focus on the areas we have in common, on the areas that we could agree on. We're not going to focus on all the different things that tear us apart. We've done that for thousands of years. It hasn't worked well. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to come together and focus on where we love each other, where we can agree. But it was, he got a lot of, um, he got a lot of negative press, a lot of negative, um, feedback from the field, both on the Christian and Jewish side. So my father actually really tried to protect us from that. He didn't want us to kind of carry the burden of his controversial life decision. So it was really only when I uh, graduated college, got married, moved to Israel that I saw the work that the fellowship was doing. And I went into my father's office and I said, Abba, which is Hebrew uh, for father and what I called my father. I said, Abba, I have to be part of this. And he looked at me and he said, no, you have to go to law school. (laughs) 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 And I insisted, I said, I'll do anything. I, you know, of course I graduated college. I was, you know, very educated and very driven. I said, I'll do anything. He said, okay, so you'll put stamps in envelopes until you remember that you want to go to law school. Hmm. And it was really from there that I had to develop my own calling, my own connection to the mission, my own connection to, to the ministry and to what it meant to me personally, not just as the daughter of, but as my own individual woman who related to it in very different ways than my father. And it was only once my father saw that I had that calling that he started giving me more and more responsibilities um, until after 15 years, the uh, Board of Directors of the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews independently voted me president-elect.
0: Mm. Wow. Wow. I mean, when you think of just your family history with this, um, nonprofit, it's, it's one where someone looking on from the outside would just think, Oh, well, of course she's the president. She's the daughter right. of the founder. Right. You get a lot of pushback from people when they know that you are the daughter. That's a really good question. Something
2: that I've had a struggle with a lot. A lot of people, I'm, I'm one of the few young women in leadership, especially in the nonprofit world, and especially in the ministry world where it's usually older men. Um, So a lot of people have asked me, Do you, how have you dealt with kind of being a woman in this world? And what I've always answered is actually, I grew up three girls, three sisters, and and my parents never said you can do anything you want, because it was kind of a given, like, it it was never an issue that we were girls or women, which I think, for me, was the best way to handle it. it wasn't like, go and fight the world as a woman. It was like, of course you can do whatever you want, you know? Um, So for me of those barriers, it was more of being the daughter of not, not being a woman, but this assumption that I was groomed for this, that I was given some kind of unequal treatment. And I think in reality, if anything, I was given unequal treatment that my father was pushing me away and a lot more critical. Um, but it's definitely something that that I've had to deal with and that what I've always said to myself was, yeah, Elle, you don't have to defend yourself. Prove everyone wrong and that's it. <laughs>
1: The goal when your dad, uh, first started the, the ministry, has that changed at all? I mean, we're always transitioning into how things are going, but where, where he started back in the eighties to where it is, is it still roughly the same thing or have you seen growth in different areas?
2: Incredible question. So I'll answer with this story. So my father, around a month before he died, and we'll get to that, he died suddenly three years ago from a heart attack. And we're working very closely. We're working on transition because he was planning on retiring two years later. And so around a month before he died, he called me and said, Yell, did you see the article that was written in the newspaper? And it was a wonderful article about him and the fellowship. I said, Yeah, I saw it. It was great. He said, Oh, it was horrible. I said, What well, was horrible about it? He said they called me a fundraiser. I'm not a fundraiser. I'm a rabbi. I'm a bridge builder. I'm a teacher. I'm not a fundraiser. I said, yeah, but Abby, you raise $114 million a year. Like it's not so far-fetched, you know? He's like, yeah, yeah, but that's not the mission. I never want to be known as a fundraiser. And so Going back to that original mission of why my father started the fellowship, it wasn't to raise a penny. It was simply to have one of the first roundtable discussions, Christian leaders and my father, a young Orthodox rabbi, where they put everything on the table and said, when you say this, I hear this. When mm. you claim this, this is, these are, uh, this is how my community looks at it. And to have a real authentic, difficult roundtable discussion in order to try to Bridge Those thousands of years of animosity. And so he did that with leaders like Pat Boone and Pat Robertson, Jack Hayford. They were all the evangelical leaders of the time that sat around and had these amazing historic discussions until uh, the Soviet Union fell. And it was these Christian leaders who said, you know, Rebbe Exton, we want to be part of this. This is prophetic. The Jews from the biblical land of the north going back to Israel, the ingathering of the nations, all four corners of the earth, just like Isaiah and Ezekiel, just like they all foresaw. As Christians, we want to be part of that. And that's when my father opened up the, the, what you could call fundraising ministry. And so um it grew from Aliyah from non-Western countries helping J- persecuted Jews around the world come to Israel. Um And it grew to helping Jews who are still in the former Soviet Union because he saw so many Holocaust survivors weren't able to get on the plane and start new in Israel. And so Mm -hmm. we had to help them there with what the Bible outlines as the basics, food, medicine, clothing. And then it grew eventually in the year 2000 to the third pillar of the ministry, which is helping with aid, security, and poverty in Israel as well. So in a way, the mission has grown to include this philanthropic side, um, that today the Fellowship, thank God, is the largest philanthropic organization in all of Israel, partnering with the Israeli government and um, almost every single nonprofit that deals with those basics in Israel and in the former Soviet Union and Ukraine. But uh but really what we're focused on has never changed in the sense of this biblical mandate of where does God want us to be? To help the elderly, to help the orphans with the basic needs. And that has never changed.
0: Looking into the future and, and ahead, there's been so many changes in the yes. past, we'll say specifically two, two and a half years, um, due to the pandemic, but even with technology, um, prior to that, for you now at the helm, are there any different changes that you want to make? Like, what is your vision for the future for, for this? Yeah,
2: so. I remember I was sitting um, in the week of mourning. It's called Shiva. After a family member dies, you sit for a week and people come and visit and pay their respects and you're in mourning for a week. And I remember I was in Shiva and it was, um, which again, we'll, we'll talk about soon, but it was a very traumatic time in my life. And there was a government leader of Israel who came to pay their respects. And she said, wow, Yael, you have big shoes to fill. How are you going to mm. fill them? And I looked at her and I said, I am never going to try to fill my father's shoes. I'm going to try to wear my own. That was the only way that I felt like I would be able to succeed, that I'd be able to. And what I defined as success was, according to all data and statistic, which I very much um, believe in studying and knowing and then kind of trusting and praying in God for whatever outcome you want, but also taking the tangible numbers in the ground in order to show you what's been done before and learned from that. I knew that, that, according to around 70% um, of likelihood, the fellowship would be closed within five years. Um, And I knew that the only way that I would be able to kind of change that and at least sustain something of this ministry that my father dedicated his whole life to would be to do it my way. Everything that I learned from my father of working side by side with him for 15 years to implement those positive kind of visionary, spiritual, connected to God, connected to the Bible, connected to the mission. But I think coming from a next generationer, it's a different position that's an opportunity from the founder. And so implementing all different changes and my unique voice, my father was very rabbinic (laughs) for lack of a better term. He was, he preached from the scriptures from a little bit of a intense, heavy place that he really connected to. He would often cry and be really emotional. And my unique position they w- is actually being happy and positive and rejoicing in the Lord. And it's a privilege I have as a second generation. I didn't have to toil the way that he had to toil, but by using that unique voice today, praise God, the fellowship not only is surviving, but we've doubled our income, double the number of donors we have, and doubled, ultimately, the amount of people we've been able to help on the ground with food, medicine, clothing, and aliyah, which for me is the most important number.
1: It's interesting because I wrote uh, as you were talking, and I I said, it's a legacy of your father that you're following and, and stepping outside the shadows of him to make it your own. And you're doing that. Does that come with pushback? Because I know if you look at churches, if a church loses their head pastor, it's almost a guarantee that 25 to 50 percent of the congregation will leave. So when you look to step into this position and you're going to make, let's say, drastic changes, if you will, man, it might not even have been, was there worry that you are going to get that pushback from whomever?
2: Wow. I was on my knees, Johnny, for days, months. I, I I still often fall to my knees, but in thanksgiving and guidance, you know, not from mm. that same place of, I can't do this without you. I, I know I can't do it with God, but God has proven, yeah, well, I'm with you. And I'm blessing this ministry in the beginning. I didn't know it was going to happen. And um, there were so many different areas, both of fear of failure personally, you know, and that falls back into what Holly was saying. of Oh yeah, she was just his daughter. Okay. So she can't really hold this. She didn't really have her own credibility to -hmm. the place that, that you're pointing out Johnny of criticism, even if it succeeds, what will be the price to get there? And, and am I willing to pay that price? You know, we, we, In order to get to the next stage, we outgrew a lot of our staff, for example, in our US offices, a lot of our board members I had to do things my way. And I knew that there would be a price to pay. And what is a kindness and gift from heaven that I will never forget nor stop singing God's praises for this whole kind of process is that there wasn't one controversial issue within Mm. All the transition within all of the changes, people stood by my side in support, in love and saying, this is what you have to do to make it stronger. And we're, we're with you, which is, I mean, I speak it and I still could be brought to
0: tears because it's, it's a God thing. Well, a strong woman isn't just born overnight. It takes some ups, it takes some downs. I'm curious about. Um, you know, your move and transition from the U.S. to Israel, you start your family. And what was that like? What kind of impact did that leave on you making such a huge move and commitment?
2: Yes, I think that was the most vulnerable point of my life where everything was turned over. When I was in America, I knew how to work the system in the sense of I knew how to open up a bank account and how to apply for a mortgage and how to be paying back my student debt. And if I did X, Y, and Z, then this would be the outcome and who to speak to in the system and what's possible and what's not. And I spoke the language that I really looked at myself as this really strong, independent woman. And was very kind of, um, that was my identity. That was what I want to be. That's what my parents raised me as. That was, I was so proud of that. And we decided to move to Israel and take that leap because we knew it was something we ultimately wanted to do. And, and we knew it would be easiest before we had kids than starting to make the move once you have kids and school and language and everything like that. So we said, there's a Hebrew saying, uh, a Talmudic saying, if not now, when? And it was on that kind of leap of faith that we're going to do it. And we moved to Israel and it was so hard. <laughs> I didn't know. We had to find an apartment. I didn't even know how to start looking. And I couldn't even read any of the ads because I didn't speak the language. We didn't have jobs. My husband was supposed to go to law school in America. I was actually a teacher and was going for my second degree. And we had nothing. We had nothing. We were living with my father actually at that point because we didn't even have an apartment or a way to pay rent. Mm. And I remember turning to God and saying, I know that I did the right thing because this is what you say in the scriptures. And if I'm going to read the scriptures and believe the scriptures and I have to take action on what you want for me, and I know this is what you want for me, but I don't know how I'm ever going to make it here. I really, it was a place I went from being this strong, in control, independent woman to... Not being able to call up the cable company, not being able to set up a bank account, not being able, the simplest things, going to the supermarket and asking where there's cream cheese and not knowing what you call cream cheese in Hebrew. No one understood me. That was, it it was just, it was so hard. And when I look back at all the different points in my life of learning lessons and trusting in God and forcing myself beyond, I think that sums up definitely one of the top um, situations that I realized, no matter how far you come in life, as far as your CV and accomplishments, and you are always there to support and help those who are more vulnerable than you, whatever mm. situation you're in.
1: Excuse my ignorance on this, because, you know, and I say my Western ignorance, was there worry uh, about safety? Because I, I think of all the conflict that has taken place and, and what we see on the news here yeah. and, and you coming from the West going to Israel, was was that something that you had ever uh, thought about or worried about?
2: So there are two, there are two different things, uh, two different, maybe more, maybe more than two, two different times so that I could think of off, off the top of my hand in the beginning that have that were the first wake up calls to you're living in the Middle East, you're living in a war zone. If you've ever been to Israel, you know that it feels safer than anywhere else in the world. You land in Israel and it's a Western country, just like a utopia, that you don't really have violence. You don't have gun violence like what's happening in America now. You don't have school shootings. You don't have kidnappings. Mm-hmm. We don't have any of those issues in Israel. What we have is terrorism. And terrorism isn't kind of like everywhere you look. And so when you land and you see everyone helping each other, and you know, like I was taught before I went to Israel, someone said to me, yeah, when you land, and just ask the person next to you to use their cell phone. Like everyone's there to help each other. It's one big family, mm. and that's exactly what it is. And so, for I made Alian two thousand and five, and it was really this kind of utopic feeling of I'm here living amongst family. I was taught to never speak to strangers, and now I'm turning to anyone with anything I need. What's the bus line? Could I get a ride to here? Do you have whatever? Anything I needed everyone was there to help. And in 2006 was the second Lebanon war. And that was my first real wake up call. I was pregnant and with my first child and, um, and it was war. It was war. And I was working in the Israel office, putting stamps on the envelopes and, uh, everyone was talking about how half the office were men who were called up to go, um, fight in the war because there's, um, uh, what's it called? I forgot how to say it in English, but basically anyone you have mandatory service from 18 to 21, and then you're called up for reserves. That's the word. Um, so every year until you're 50, you go for between two weeks and a month to train in reserves with your, uh, original kind of army crew. And then when there's a war, you're called up to go fight. So suddenly overnight, there's a war and half our office is gone. The other half of the office are women whose husbands are gone, um, you know, dealing with children and dealing with all the different things. And so it was still this place of like, okay, but we're like playing house, right? They'll come back and everything will be fine. This is what people do. You go out and you fight and then you come back and everything will be fine. And I'll never forget. I, I could remember the song that was on the radio, the intersection I was at when I got a phone call that someone that I worked with was very close with that her husband was killed in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. And I, I still, I like going back to that moment is something that might've been the hardest, one of the hardest points in my life of realizing this is real. Like this child I'm pregnant with It's going to have to go to the army, this tiny piece of country that we're living on that feels so utopic. We are still in our war of independence. This is real. And are you willing to pay the price to live here? And it, it was it was still, when I think about it, I could go back to that moment in a second. And it's something that I always do go back to of of making that decision. I know the price and I'm willing and wanting to be here. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it was the same feeling when I had to run to the bomb shelter, I had three little kids and code red sirens sounding. And me and my husband have, you know, 60 seconds to grab our three sleeping babies. And we didn't have a bomb shelter to, so to go to the, uh, staircase and it's, it's, Hard to, um, face the reality that we're in the Middle East and that we're still fighting our war of independence and it's still not, um, clear who's going to win. We're surrounded by, you know, an almost nuclear Iran with proxies on every single border. At any moment, war can break out as I've seen from the, you know, 17 years I've lived here. But what I think is, is what I fall back on are three things. Number one, I believe I'm exactly where God wants me, which means I'm in the safest place in the world because things could happen anywhere. You know, we, we should never know car accidents. I mean, there could be so many different things that could happen to anyone. And I believe that everything's not in our hands. Our decision, if we pray or not, is in our hands. And I pray so hard for my family, for my children, for the people of Israel, for the people of the world. And then it's up to God. I have to know that what I'm doing is right. The second thing is when I could teach my children that not not that if my son's out camping right now, he's 13, him and his friends are camping. And what I said to him when he left yesterday and for two nights, I said, if you need anything, you ask the person next to you. There's no such thing as don't talk to strangers. It's not, it's not like, that's the craziest thing you've ever heard. Don't talk to strangers. Like what? They're there, you know, and he already called me and said, yeah, the people, the people, the family in the tent next to me made popcorn and they gave us some, and you know, <laughs> that how can I give that up? Um, and the third is that this is part of biblical prophecy coming to fruition. My grandfather is a Holocaust survivor. His entire family was killed in Germany that we have, a government and an army who has one focus, one objective, one goal, and that's to keep the Jewish people safe. Period. I feel safer than anywhere else in the world.
1: You mentioned that at any point in time, you, your life could be over. You, you could, you loss of a life is, is difficult. Um, loss of a father is, is incredibly difficult. One thing to know that it's coming. Another thing to have that happen. Suddenly, how does one react to finding out that your father has passed? <sighs>
2: It's still something uh, I think I'm reacting to maybe. Um, yeah, it's a hard thing. On one hand, there's so many blessings to, when I think of my father, I think of him strong, young, healthy, on the floor, playing with my children, giving me hugs and kisses, um, which is the biggest blessing in the world. But to go from that to getting a phone call, your father had a heart attack and is dead, the funeral is tomorrow,
0: hmm.
2: um, is is something that I don't know if you ever really fully grasp it. I still haven't fully grasped it. As we say in Hebrew, for good and for bad. <laughs> the good part is I still feel so close to my father, like he's just going to come back from a work trip any day, you know, like and walk in the door and oh, I miss you. I haven't seen you for so long. Um, and the bad is that that's not the reality. He's not coming back. And It's, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to face. Um, so when we talk about kind of where we get our strengths from, as Holly was talking about earlier, like from the highest place, from the lowest place, um, that's definitely from the lowest place that I had to find my resilience, find my own love for myself, because my father's love was what always kind of kept me going and gave me that confidence, find that security for myself, no longer having the security of my father. And then not only dealing with the loss of a parent who I was so close to, and, you know, so um, emotionally connected to, but also overnight, being thrown, (laughs) dare I say, into this position of president and CEO of the largest philanthropic organization in Israel, one of the largest organizations in the world, with over 300,000 donors relying on me and over 1.4 million recipients relying on me. Um, It's a big burden that definitely without faith, without God, I would not have been able to carry. This is a why me moment. This is uh, there were a few times that that going to that. I think like even just saying it, why me? Like that's such a vulnerable. Um, uh, I, I mean, even like it's so uncomfortable for me because it's even like a victimhood kind of right. Like mm-hmm. why me? Why me? Why me? And and I, I I try to never be in that place. But the truth is, it describes that moment when I got the phone call that my father died perfectly. Why Why me? Really, God? Why me? I can't handle this. I can't handle losing my father, being alone in Israel, who's my only family member in Israel, having no other family in Israel, and taking on the reins of this huge ministry that's saving lives. Why me? I can't do that. And I think that it was, um, I had the seven days of mourning that you have where I said, I'm not thinking at all about work. I'm going to only mourn my father. I'm not mourning the president of the organization. I'm not mourning the person who I worked with. I'm not mourning my boss. I'm mourning my father. That's it, period. And I'm not wearing the hat of anything fellowship, only the daughter. And for those seven days, I was really present in that loss and mourning and identity. But then as soon as I got up after those seven days, I said, I'm, I'm called to do this. And the first place I went was to the office to speak to our staff, to speak to all of our global offices. We have offices in Chicago, in Canada, in Korea, and in Jerusalem. And I went to the Jerusalem office, spoke virtually to all the offices. And, you know, I really felt like, okay, if this is what God believes I can do, I have to try. And I remember every step of the way, every second saying, God, I'm going to do my best, but I don't know what will be. That's only in your hands. And I said that to the board of directors, I'm going to do my best. I know what changes I think need to happen. I know the place that I want to take the fellowship, but I can't guarantee anything. This is new turf. This is in God's hands. And it was when I went into the office for the first time that um, I had to sit in my father's chair.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. and sitting in your father's chair, um, is, is something that like in our house, we didn't really do, you know, it's like, that's your father's chair. And for 15 years, when I worked with my father, he sat in that chair and I sat across from him writing down and studying his every word. And when I went into that office and I was surrounded by the chairman of our board and our COO. And they said, yeah, you have to sit there. I said, no, 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 give me a different office. I I, I don't need such a big office. No, this isn't. Just give me a little corner on the side. I said, no, you have to do this. And it was this moment of realizing during my father's life, I respected him by not sitting in that chair. And after his death, the best way I can respect him is by sitting there. And I think that's what kind of was the beginning of, of getting out of this, why me space, this place of, I can't do this. What's expected of me. What's wanted from me. What's going to be of me. I can't do this to this place of sitting in my father's chair and saying, I'm honoring him. He's with me. God's with me. And I am willing to accept whatever will be.
1: How proud do you think he is of you now, Uh, in these number of years that you've been in charge and, and he, and he has passed of, of what you've accomplished.
2: I hope he's proud. He, when we were younger, anything we do, he was such a, a a dotting daddy and anything we do, he would sing this song. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. I (laughs) hope that you are proud of me. Of you two, and that was the song in our house. That <laughs> whatever we did, we'd get our report cards. We would ride our bike for the first time. That um, as you asked that question, I kind of heard heard him singing that. You know, I his legacy, and this is something that 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 I had to figure out in the beginning when I sat in his chair. His legacy spoke for itself in a way; it had nothing to do with if I continued it or not. Nothing I could do could either belittle or grow the huge impact that he independently made on this world, on so many people, on history. And so, um, I still look at it like that, that, that what I'm doing is simply, I hope furthering, growing, you can say, but not growing as far as growing impact, but growing as far as time-wise. You know, people are forgotten. You read history books and people have made huge impacts that I guess my goal is to grow the impact and memory of my father, but that his own legacy
0: stands on its own two feet. I love that. That song too. I just think What a great example of our Heavenly Father. Like, I just, I love that. I can imagine God just being like, I'm proud of you. And he's singing that song, too. I just love that so much. Yes, he's singing it to you, Holly. Thank you. (laughs) And, of course, you're not just a part of this nonprofit. You're not just a mom and a wife. You're also an author because there's nothing else that you've got going on. Uh, you know I believe
2: uh the world is thirsty there's a there's a prophetic verse The hunger will not be for food, the thirst will not be for water, but just to hear the word of the Lord and I believe that. I don't believe I have any uh, uh, monopoly on the word of the Lord, but I believe I have my own understanding and my own connection and my own interpretation that if I can add a little bit of the love and positivity and beauty of God's word to this world that's so thirsty for it then I am honored and humbled to do my part.
1: ifcj.ca, if you want to get uh, more information on how you can get involved. Yael, this has just been such an absolute pleasure. I'm so glad that you're able to find the balance, take some time and hang out with myself and Holly.
2: Thank you so much, Johnny. You guys are really fun. So it's really been,
0: it's really been my honor. (laughs) Aw, thank you and happy anniversary. Thank you. Thank you. Now get back to the party. (laughs) Sorry,
1: honey, I got to go talk to the Canadians.
0: (laughs) That's the best
2: thing there is to do. I mean, I can't think of any... If I'm not going to be with my husband and family right now, talking to the Canadians is definitely second best. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You guys are awesome. Thank you so much.
1: If that doesn't make you want to go to Israel and hang out with her and her family, I don't know what would.
0: Yeah. I mean, they're having a party today because it's an anniversary. I mean... (laughs)
1: You think about two weeks ago that we talked with uh, Carlos about yeah. his dad yeah. and just the the incredible legacy that he had. And then now, and like two weeks later, we get to do this all again.
0: I know. I mean, I'm really glad that we actually didn't speak to her closer to Father's Day. I would mm-hmm. have lost it, just hearing the kind of relationship that she had with her dad. Um, I mean, to have Carlos's story and then hers. Yeah, my my poor heart. <laughs> We need a different kind of guest next, next week.
1: <laughs> if you're not silly, then... Yeah.
0: yeah. Oh, man. Like, I almost had tears. Just uh, a beautiful relationship and such a great reflection of our Abba Father. And uh, for anyone who's not had that in their life or experienced that, it was such a beautiful way of piecing together what God looks like from that masculine uh, perspective.
1: I really also appreciate the, you know, we talk about, Oh, because you and me, Johnny and Holly as the president and CEO of IFCJ, I think it's way too much for you and I, yeah but that's not where we're supposed to be. Yeah. And I think it really hit home when she says, yeah, this is, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And God will put you where he wants you to be and where he's going to best utilize you.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so God's trusting you with that role. So trust in him that he'll give you what you need as you need it.
1: Yeah, that's really good. But uh, yeah, just an incredible time with Yael. And so thankful that you were able to download the podcast. You're able to check it out wherever it is that you are downloading, whether it is Apple podcast or Spotify. We have all of these socials as well that we're going to eventually get like two followers.
0: Yeah, one day we have (laughs) goals. <laughs> we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook and maybe one day we have a dream of YouTube, but we're not there quite yet.
1: I heard this YouTube thing is going to be something at some point.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe one day.
1: <laughs> Think about it. We're just going to put videos on a place for people to watch.
0: Game changer.
1: Going to call it MeTube. <laughs>
0: Oh, my goodness. Check us out wherever you get your podcast. Just look for Why Me Project. And, of course, you can always go to faithstrongtoday.com.